The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is a, an incredibly special day for me. Our guest is John Grisham. I almost feel silly giving a proper introduction, but as a professional, I will. Uh, one of the most successful authors of all time, certainly of our time, uh, and an important writer, too, who clearly has a, a mission about and a purpose about uh, justice in, in its many different in the many different ways you could define it. I got to know John a little bit because I've uh, worked adapting one of his novels into a, a movie along with my partner, David Levine, and that was Runaway Jury. And we we almost got a TV series to screen together, uh, The Street Lawyer, which is still uh, among my uh, regrets that it didn't somehow. John, thanks for being here. Delighted to be here. Good seeing you again. You too. All right. Let's jump right in. Um, I have some biographical questions and, and uh, you haven't done many of these podcasts, so I think it's a real opportunity for people to hear stuff about you that they haven't before. But but I want to start now and having just read your new book, The Whistler, and loved it. Um, how would you define your mission now? Like, I read a quote of yours that mentioned the Graham Greene distinction, you know, some books right. being entertainments and some right. being more important. But other than a select few books of yours, your point of view about power, influence, and like the corrosive nature of unearned wealth comes through very clearly. So I'm wondering how you think about mission and, and purpose. I don't think about mission. I think about story. But all my stories deal with uh, – most of my stories deal with some aspect of um, the justice system or social injustice that, that really uh, keeps my attention. Those are the stories I love. I love the issues that are – Related to the legal system and injustice and, you know, it comes through time and time again, whether it's wrongful conviction, whether it's a death penalty, whether it's abuse of power. Those are the stories that I, I'm captivated by. And and I, I take those stories and if I can uh, pick an issue and then kind of weave a novel around it, I think those books are better because they, they're a little heavier. And they're um, hopefully always entertaining, but also um, can get the reader to think about an issue. Yeah. So you started by saying you don't really have a mission. You just think about story. But then you, as, as you do in a John Grisham <laughs> novel, you then came back around to leaving the reader with, with something to think. And I, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about the villains in the new book. Yeah. And what struck me. Is, and I, I read the book. You know, the great thing is, right, your books are, are meant to be read quickly. And they keep the reader interested. But in this book, you, you have villains of all different social strata. And you make a point about the ways they become used to this new life. Some of them, it's newer. Some have had it for 20 years, 17 years. But uh, you have this, this crooked judge. I won't say too much, but it's not a spoiler because you, you out it quickly. But who looks at her possessions in much the same way Gollum looks at the, at the ring. And it's clear that there's something about the way, uh, the corrosive nature of power and influence that you feel, or it comes through in the books that, that, you, that you think is, is, is somehow going crooked in, in our country. Well, first of all, this book is, uh, falls in the category of just a pure entertainment. It's the, to me, it's got some, it's got some heavier aspects to it, especially when you look, the backdrop is Indian casino gambling. Okay, which is now larger than regular commercial casino gambling. And uh, there are 200 and some odd casino, indie casinos in the country. I don't I had not read a lot about about a lot of corruption, but it's a perfect recipe for things to go wrong because you have people who are not that sophisticated when it comes to organized gaming who suddenly have uh, the ability to build a casino that will attract tons of money, 90 percent of which comes in, in the form of cash. And they, they, they also attract a lot of, uh, shadowy people who want to take advantage of the situation. And so it's, it's a perfect recipe for corruption. Fortunately, we have not read about a lot of corruption with Indian casinos. We have not read about a lot of judicial corruption. Uh, our country has been remarkably clear, clean of, of corruption. A few cases occasionally, but, and I make the point in the book, this judge steals more than all other judges combined. Uh, but it's, it's not about, it's not about all, it's, 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 it's entertainment. There's no big social issue involved here. I don't take something like wrongful convictions or the death penalty or, or, uh, uh, Judicial elections or a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of the issue books, you know, I go back to the same things over and over. 
Uh, I, my wife says, "Come on, get off the soapbox. You, can, yes. you can't. You can't preach all the time. Just go write a good old fashioned legal thriller without all the issues. That's what I well, try to do. You don't hit us over the head with it, and the book's certainly entertaining. But I think about a scene, uh, and I won't give it away. But I think about a scene like the golf course scene. There are a couple of them, but the golf course scene where uh, the 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 main villain, the deepest villain, uh, you describe sort of a day of golf with his buddies." And I started thinking about the banality of evil when I was reading that, like Hannah Arendt. You know, I started thinking about this person who's caused all this damage and he and his buddies having a day of this kind of leisure. We're right within it. You say, you know, and it involved cheating. Of course, the day involved them trying to cheat each other. Sure. And so even if you're not on a soapbox, it does seem like your fascination with the human being's capacity to commit mundane evil without being reflected like really reflecting on it it's, it can like concerns you well also also it does but also how um you can become accustomed to corruption the big money that. you think it's after a while you can you can rationalize the fact you deserve it because of all these good things you've done that's what a lot of people do you know when they get in that position the, the most folks start stealing just a little bit and then again, oftentimes, and when I was a lawyer, I had some cases involving embezzlers, and they were always going to pay it back. You know, they took a small amount. One more, amount, one took, more took time. A small amount. They're going to pay it back, and maybe they did pay it back. Okay, hey, that was easy. I'll do it again. I'll do it again. And before you know it, they're way over their heads. Same, same with uh, corrupt officials. They take a little, a small bribe, and that was easy, and it felt good, and they got by with it. So they, you know, they go, and before before long, they're really, really stealing, or in this case, raking off the top of the, of the, the casinos. And they get used to it, and they rationalize their corruption by saying, okay, I'm sort of entitled to this. And the judge in this case actually had a hand in getting the casino made. So it's her casino. It's her piggy bank, and she, she her, we, 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 we let that cat's out of the back. Uh, we're talking about the novel. But she, you know, she became very uh, accustomed to this lavish lifestyle because she thought she earned it. And her salary wasn't much as a judge, and so suddenly she's got the big cash coming in, and she can justify that. Sure. I mean, r- right from the beginning, uh, your second novel, the, the first novel clearly had so, you know, societal concerns. But even right from, from the second novel, The Firm, which became this runaway incredible success, there was like a skepticism about the wisdom of the collective mind, the mob, and like what happens when a leadership vacuum is filled by evil or cowardice. And I'm wondering where, and I've heard you talk about Grapes of Wrath in terms of like the 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 world, but where did this, sorry, man, you're here, and I'm like, you know, we're doing this, where I prepare, where and how did this point of view develop? You know, I can't answer that question. When I wrote The Firm, I wasn't thinking about big themes or uh, serious issues. I was trying to write a novel that I thought would have more of a commercial appeal. I wanted to sell some books. Okay, Time to Kill was my first novel. They put in 5,000 hardback copies, and it was a total flop. We couldn't give the books away, and I and it took three years to write that book. And so I, I actually told my wife, I said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this one more time. I'm going to write one more book, and I hope it's something that it has, it seeks a broader audience. It's more commercial, whatever. It's hopefully suspenseful, and I'm just going to tell this story the best way I can. And I, I wasn't thinking about themes of greed and corruption and organized crime. <laughs> I was trying to tell a compelling story. And um, – and it worked. But don't you reveal your view on he- – like, you may not uh, – like, uh, you know, um, I remember the Scott Turow books at the time. Like, I'd read Scott Turow, so I read your – I remember when my mom gave me The Firm, and I read it on, during the summer on a, a trip and couldn't believe it. But um, – and I loved Scott Turow's books, and I'd read 1L, and I so I, I was a, a fan of his. But your book did seem to be talking about – I mean, you – and I'm only getting into this because I think sometimes people give you short shrift on this stuff, and I feel like it's important, which is right away you did have a character, Mitch McDear was an outsider, and who needed desperately to be part of the establishment because he needed he needed money, he needed standing, he had no standing, he felt like he couldn't. And so even if you weren't trying to tell a polemical story, that's not an accident that that's who you were writing about. In some way, were you writing about yourself? So, uh, well... We both had very humble origins, um, very humble backgrounds. I didn't go to Harvard and <laughs> make it, make it out of Mississippi. Uh, but I did share that aspect of our, our backgrounds with him and it was easy to create 
this underdog, this kid who, you know, was not a rich kid or necessarily, a, you know, a blue blood uh, and give him the chance to to come out on top, to take the, pr- the prize job, a job he should not have taken. Maybe he didn't get the other interviews. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't go into all that. Uh, hey, come on, Bryce. Twenty five years ago, man. I can't remember all this stuff. <laughs> no, but you. Yeah, but but your lifelong subject since then has been the use and misuse of the legal system for personal game de- redemption, settling scores, and then sometimes hard won justice. Well, occasionally, not all the time. I mean, not all the time. I, well, I, sure, uh, playing for pizzas and. Sure, and, and uh, my sports books—they're just sports books. Yes, they—they they are, but but still, if we're looking at the body of work. It deals with this stuff, and I'm wondering if you held if the fact that these people were misusing the very thing that's supposed to be used to help the disenfranchised is part of it. Nah, you you're reading too much into it, man. You, you, in, in in the secret to writing good suspense is several secrets, but you got to have really good bad guys. Yes. I mean, you you got to have some really nasty characters sure. that that scare people and get your hero or heroine in trouble. And it's it's uh, I spend more time creating the bad guys than the good guys because that's what drives the story. It's all about story. It's all about, it's all about story, plotting, pacing, and uh, so uh, don't don't read too much into okay, it. Okay, I'll get off of this. <laughs> I'll get off of this, except all I'll say to people is look up John's work with like the Innocence Project and the nonfiction he wrote about it and the time he is you have spent, sir trying to write these wrongs in the real world. And that tells me that it, that, and I understand that as a writer, maybe you don't want to give this all, uh, all away, but I just think that within these stories, you're doing something else and your real life work has proven it. Maybe I'll grant that. You know what? I would love to take, I would love to take every wrongful conviction case. And because I've seen so many of them now on the board of the innocence project, I wrote about one. It was published 10 years ago. And I uh, love the book, love the story. It was nonfiction, and it took me 18 months to write it, and it was far too much work. I'm far too lazy for that kind of stuff. But I, I, every wrongful conviction case is a fantastic story because of the issues, the suffering, the the the, the, the incredible waste, the fact that the real rapist is still out there. I mean, it's just some, you're serving time yeah, for somebody sure. else's crime. The, those stories, and they involve – Police who get off on the wrong track and do bad things and prosecutors who, you know, prosecute the wrong people and judges who are asleep and jurors who are stupid. I mean, the whole system breaks down in a wrongful conviction case and, and the families go through hell. And I mean, I, I love these stories and I wish I could write every one of them, uh, and, but I can't. You know, And, I, and it, of course, right in this book. The new book, oh, yeah, which is that. a pure entertainment. I forgot about that. Uh, which is a pure a entertainment. Conviction, a wrongful right thing. at the center of it is a I wrongful conviction. I forgot about the guy on death row. Yeah. I'm boomeranging <laughs> you right into admitting that you care about this stuff because I do think it's important. I, just can't, I can't help myself. I just can't you help can't. myself. You can't. You can't help yourself. All right. Let's talk about the writer stuff. I'll get off of the thematics for now and we can circle back. But I mean, it is right there. It's funny, our mutual friend, David Gurner, said to me, uh, have you read the book? And I was like, you think I'm going to sit with John Grisham without reading the freaking book, man? (laughs) Of course I'm going to read the book closely. Um, So when did you first begin? Because, you know, someone who I I read where you said something about you're a brand now, but that wasn't what you intended. And when someone looks at at a person who's achieved what you've achieved, I think sometimes it's hard to actually see the human being who still has to grind out the pages. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't outsource it. You don't have a team of writers. You write your own books. I can't imagine doing that. I, I cannot imagine uh, writing a, or putting my name on a novel I haven't written or a book I haven't written. Uh, I don't think there are many people doing that today. James Patterson, of course, is, gets the most attention. He writes the most books or he publishes the most books, uh, but somebody else writes them. I don't see that as a trend. I do. You, you do see it with uh, folks who are dead and their estates Go on with somebody else, right? Robert Love, sure, Tom Clancy, those guys, forever, yeah. um, Robert Parker, a few of those guys. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of cringe when I see that because it's the family, whoever controls the literary estate is still cranking out the, you know, using but, the name. Yeah. The, and, and I, you know, I just, I just signed a brand new will, my wife and I, and I gave specific instructions to, to my family, you know, don't do that. Don't put, you don't publish anything under my name after I'm gone. So right, I, just, if I didn't write it. It wouldn't be any fun to publish a book if you didn't write it. So when did you first begin to think of yourself as a writer? Like, what were the clues that you had what it took? Well, it's not something I dreamed about as a kid. It's not something I studied as a student. It's not something I I even began doing until I was 35 years old. And, no, 30. I was 30. I was, 19, I was 30 years old when I started writing A Time to Kill. 
it was I don't know. I, I had a status story based on something I'd seen in a courtroom, and I took some plot twists and turns here and there, and I said this could be a very compelling courtroom drama set in a small town in Mississippi as played out through the eyes of the young defense attorney, much like myself. And I, I was the same age. And I was dreaming of the big case, the big verdict, the big all the attention. You know, that's what I wanted as a young lawyer. And I became obsessed with this idea. Uh, and it, finally, I said, okay, well, see if you can write it. And I literally uh, sat down one night with a legal pad, and I wrote chapter one and <laughs> wrote the first sentence. And um, three years later, it was finished. And that, and that, when did I realize it? Uh, I still didn't know what I was doing. Um, I've always read a lot. And uh, once I started writing that book, I began reading even more, uh, all kinds of stuff. I read everything on the bestseller list, and, and I, was very, I was very honest with myself. I would read a great book, and I would say, I can never do that. I'd read a terrible book, and I'd say, you know, there's room for me. I can, <laughs> That's I can do this. Sure. It was actually the bad books that kept me going. And yeah. there, there were a lot of bad books. I remember a bad screenplay that I read that let me know that I could – I, 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 I won't say it. I knew the person. They gave me this script. I read it, and I was like, you were – and the person had gotten hired to write screenplays. And I thought, oh, I, I don't have to be as good as David Mamet. Yeah. <laughs> I can just <laughs> – do this. I read a book one time at the beach with my wife, long, 1986. I was trying to write my first novel. And the writer was insanely famous. He made a bunch of money, sold a bunch of books. And this is novel number seven or what in his series or whatever. And um, it was so bad, I started underlining sentences. So how can you possibly <laughs> write a sentence this clunky and awful, you know, and, and get it published and sell? You're on the bestseller list. You're selling millions of these things. Okay, that does it. I'm inspired. The bad, the bad books kept me going. And so, what you said, you didn't write the story till you were 30. I didn't write till I was 30 either. But in the back of my mind, when I was a, a kid, like um, I gravitated toward, pe- toward books, toward people who wrote. I was fascinated by those people. Something was stopping mm. me. I played sports like you did, and all that stuff. But I, there was some pull that I eventually had to pay attention to. What kind of kid were you? Uh, very much an athlete, a kid who played all the sports, stayed in the streets, uh, really, um, it was a very strict conservative Southern Baptist upbringing, which was good, tight family, parents there, uh, family and friends, the church was an extension of the family, and it was a really, uh, it was warm and, and, and protective and, and all that stuff. At the same time, it was the late 1960s. And things were changing, you know, everywhere. And, and we were questioning, uh, you know, wh- what we believed and whatever. So the world was changing around us. But it was, a, you know, again, it was a perfect place to grow up in the suburbs with a million kids. There was always a ball game. There was always a ball game somewhere, organized or street ball or sandlot or whatever. And that's all we did after school every day or during school or whatever. It was all about sports, and and we were all huge St. Louis Cardinal fans. That was our team, and we used to have fights uh, about who was going to play, you know, center field for the Cardinals, you know, because we we're all going to we're all going to make it. Want to be Lou Brock? Or yeah, something? Lou Brock, Kurt Flood. It was yeah. just a question: who's going to get there? And you know, we, we that, that was my life. Okay, that and Boy Scouts. We had a great Boy Scout troop. And we stayed in the woods. We camped out. We summer camp. We we could do all kinds of stuff that I couldn't dream of doing now in the woods, cooking and you know swimming and and all all this stuff. So it was it was a wonderful kind of self sufficiency is good for a writer's life. Basically, the resourcefulness. But uh, it was I still didn't think about it. But I didn't think. No, I know you didn't think about it at all. Then, so if you had an assignment in school or in college, did anyone ever look at you and say, you know, you can write? I was never intimidated by writing uh, as a kid, as a student. Uh, I had a teacher in college, a professor. We had to write, it was, I forget the name of the course, but it was some type of business course. And we had to write a letter uh, after, this is all fiction. You, you, you went to the to do the interview with the, with the prospective employer. And when you got back, you had to write a letter uh, expressing your gratitude for them allowing you. Right, a practice for real life, practice for real yeah. life having to write the letter. And yeah. I wrote this letter uh, that I thought was really funny and, you know, whatever, and and turned it in, and she gave it back to me with an A plus and said, this was brilliant. And I thought, brilliant? I, I'm just trying to be funny. You know, I think it was brilliant. <laughs> you just tossed, kind just, of tossed just, it off. Yeah. It was an assignment for me. That's the first time I think any teacher ever said anything about my writing. Um, when I was in law school, my first semester torts exam 
you know, we had, you have one exam, one four hour exam. I got to the last page and law, as you know, law exam, hypothetical questions, they, th- they throw in everything but the kitchen sink and, and, and yes. into a factual scenario. You've got to break it down. What are the legal issues? How would you solve it? Okay. So I, I was tired. I got to the last page and I just didn't, I didn't get it. I, I didn't get the question. I, I was, I'd already blown the test, whatever. So I just started writing a bunch of BS, you know, I, I, about the characters and the, in the, in the, in the problem and this and that, and whatever. Wrote pages and pages. So I, I, I came back after uh, the Christmas break to get my grades. And I didn't, I didn't want to see this torch exam. Because you knew you bombed oh, it. Oh, I, I, I bombed it. Okay. And, it, and the professor was there. I got the exam, took it next door, and I got a B on it. I was really surprised. And I flipped through it, and it was in pretty good shape. And I got to the very last page, and at the very bottom, it was all, it had red marks everywhere. He said, um, although you missed most of the legal issues in this problem, you have a real talent for fiction. And that, oh, that's fantastic. So, so he and I, we, we still laugh about that. He's still alive. Oh, I was going to say, did you send him your first book? Oh, we're still close friends. And uh, we have a big, we've told that story several times together, but now, nobody really noticed. Uh, I mean, I wasn't writing anything. You know, was, I practiced law for 10 years and, you know, wrote my share of briefs and appeals and stuff like that. I was always uh, conscious of avoiding the legalese. Well, that's clear because it's so, it's so clear in your books that yep. you are, you take pains to lay this thing out as cleanly as yep. possible. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about this. You, you don't, your writing style has only gotten better, but in, in a way that it's so clear that you care about these sentences and you care about the reader not having to stop. Right. And not having to try to untangle the thing. Right. It, it's very clean. And I imagine you think about writing it cleanly. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I had a teacher who uh, – we had to read Faulkner because you're in Mississippi, right? It's a state law. Sure. You have to read tons of Faulkner. Um, but this teacher had uh, mercy on us, and she also let us read John Steinbeck. And so I read most of Steinbeck's books that senior year. And I, I remember thinking, I would love to be able to write this clearly, as clearly as Steinbeck. Of course, again, I was burdened by Faulkner. Uh, but I remember, I remember thinking that. I, I was not thinking about being a writer. I was just you know, commenting on how clean and clear he wrote. And that's something I still try to do today is cut out a lot of words. You know, When I write a sentence, once it's done, uh, I'll read it two or three times, often out loud, looking for, for, for things to cut, looking right. for words to cut. And then that's the first draft. The second draft, I go through it again and cut some more, and sometimes even a third draft to cut some more. And then by the time my editor gets it, that's when the serious cutting starts. So I mean, you, you've got I was to be ask able, you all these questions. Yeah, that's, yeah, you, you got to be able to. It's, writers are spoiled. We have no limits. Okay, my next novel could be four hundred pages of manuscript or a thousand, and nobody's going to say a word. Unless the editor says, you got to cut some of this crap out. Time to Kill was a 1,000 pages. By the time I was finished, I had no idea what I was doing. They cut a third of it out. Uh, good cuts. Well, it took three years to write the book. That's a year's worth of work, okay? And I thought, I'm not doing this crap again, okay? So I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the outline up front, so I always know where I'm going. I work on the outline for weeks, months, sometimes even years. I mean, I can't get it right. I work on it for a long time. But when I start the book on January the 1st, uh, to finish by July the 1st, I've got a clear outline. of I know exactly where the story's going. I know how it's going to end. I love John Irving's books, and John Irving says he writes the last sentence before he writes the first. Right. I'm not that smart, but I know what the last scene is before I write the first scene. And are you outlining a couple of books at a time so that when January 1st comes, you have the thing to write? Well, I am now because it's October 24th. And, uh, it's, and I've had, I have not written, uh, well, I finished, uh, The Whistler in the middle of August. So I take a few weeks off and I get bored and I start writing something else. But I, I'm always adding, t- adding notes to the outline or several outlines. So yeah, there's several outlines that, that I, I keep working on. If occasionally I'll get, I'll, I'll get the brilliant idea. Yeah, the idea that's going to work right now and can't wait, and I'll stop everything and do that outline. Well, yeah, this is what I was I was going to also ask if you feel free to. I I want to know about the process. I want to dive into the process because it's fascinating, and um, not just to writers, but to anyone who works at perfecting their craft and anything that they're doing. Do you feel free to deviate from the outline when you're? going to draft sure. if an idea hits. I was thinking about the character of the brother and I understand why the brother became, as I was reading the book, when the brother showed up, I wondered, oh, maybe this person will have a purpose 
later, but it was also, it seemed to me, like that character got a hold of you and yeah. you just started having a lot of fun, which was really right. fun right. for the reader. So does that, it, it, did you know the, that in the middle you were going to spend all that time with the brother? He, he was not in the outline. Right. I knew it. He was not in the outline. Ah, that's great. Uh, he I, was, I knew he, it reading the book. Yeah, he pops in a chapter uh, probably one third of the way in. Yeah. And uh, our, 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 our heroine is a 35-year-old lawyer in Florida. And she, she, she gets injured, so she's in the hospital. And her brother comes to see her. And at that point, I'm thinking, we have got to have some, some humor, some spark, yes. some conflict with this guy. She's got, you know, the, the, it needed something. And, and you can't, you can't, you cannot outline everything. You, you never, there's no way. And so, and so, and so you, you know, I said, okay, I've, I've got to, and this guy pops into the scene. And at that point, I was having a whole lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it read like that. I mean, I, I I wrote a note next to it somehow a few pages in, like, this wasn't in the outline. Right. John found this guy and fell in love with yeah. this character. Right. And it's really fun to read because the book changes there yeah. for this period of time. Right. You're in a different kind of book. And then you – so then mechanically you then had to real, – you realized, okay, did you fold some other character's business into that character's? Because the things he did were – Important. Not really fold. Uh, no, I didn't change. I didn't change course much. I just added him to the to the to the mix, and it was easy. That's that's when a book is fun to write. When when again, it, it's important to outline everything because if you don't know where you're going, you can waste huge amounts of time. And time is always crucial when you're when you're always on a deadline. You can't waste two months uh, if if you if you if you're on deadline. Uh, writing a book that w- where you take a left turn for no reason, okay? So you've got to know what the end is. You've got to know the outline, but you, at the same time, you can't. You're, you're never handcuffed to it. You, you you've got the freedom, the flexibility. Hey, man, you, you're writing your own book, okay? You're doing whatever you want to do with your own <laughs> yeah. book. No, no, nobody. At this point, my wife's not even reading the book. I mean, she no, no one's reading the book. All right, <laughs> she she'll start reading when I'm about two thirds of the way. F- through, she'll start reading the early chapters because she you knows she didn't want to read a book over the course of three months. Uh, but so for the for the almost the, the, the entire the, the first two thirds of the book, it's just you and your manuscript. Whatever you want to do, I mean that's the beauty of it. Now it's got to work. It's a, because if it doesn't, it's all on you. Uh, but that's that's when it's fun, right? So what is the 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 process? Like, you know, you, you explained the first book, it sort of came to you in pieces, this mm-hmm. idea, this could be a story that I could tell. Okay, I'm going to give it a shot. That's a very kind of romantic writer's story. Mm-hmm. And then at what time did you decide, well, I'm going to be a professional? I'm going to – because, right, there's this, there's this fight that, that all artists wage within themselves, which is, you know, uh, the, the idea of needing a creative routine versus waiting for that moment of incredible inspiration. And it sounds like your first book, inspiration hit you. Right. And then what what did it become like when you kind of codified it into a process? Well, as as I said a while ago, I wasted so much time and effort with my first book because it was not carefully outlined. I always knew how the story was going to end because it's a trial. I knew the verdict. I knew what was going to happen afterwards. I knew getting there was going to take a lot of words to get there. So I mean, I always, I always knew where I was going. I thought I got, I made a lot of mistakes. The mistakes cost me a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I said, I'm not going to do that again. So with the firm, I did more of an outline. I did more of a, I still got in trouble with the ending and the, and the movie really butchered it, <laughs> yes. but who cares? Uh, but again, that was part of the learning process. And so with, this is kind of a funny story with the Pelican Brief, my third book, I sat down and wrote this massive outline. Okay. 45 page outline all the way through. And I sent that to my agent at the time, not David, but my first agent. And the guy freaked out, loved the story, loved the story, loved the story. So he leaked it <laughs> to Hollywood. Uh, he said he never knew. He was, he was bad to leak. He, he had a plumbing problem. So <laughs> stuff was always leaving his office. Sure. So anyway, it pops up in Hollywood and out there, they have trouble reading 45 pages. So, so, so somebody out there took my 45-page outline, condensed it to like a three-page – like three-page story. coverage of your 45 yeah, yeah, pages? Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't handle the whole outline, so they, they, they wrote a three-page treatment of my outline, and Alan Pakula saw it. The great director of – And I get a phone call one day. Right? I'm coaching a Little League baseball game, pulling up in Oxford, Mississippi, and my wife calls and says, you got to go call this guy Alan Pakula. I said, okay, I've heard of Alan Pakula. 
uh, she said, well, he, he wants to direct the Pelican Brief because he, he saw your three-page treatment <laughs> based on a 45-page outline for a book I hadn't started writing yet. And so we sold the film rights based on the that, that. But again, my point is that's how detailed the outline right, was. Right, the outline really told the story. Yeah. And, and so what's your daily routine like during this this time that you're you're creating? Like, do you get up and, and work in the morning? Do you exercise? How do you how do you get yourself into the – how do you prime the pump, right? Stephen King hates <sighs> the where do you get your ideas question. But routine, uh, for me, routine is part of it, like journaling or meditating. Like everyone has their way of doing it. What's your way routine, of- Routine, uh, listen, routine is what it's all about. You've got to get into a routine that is second nature, something you love. It's, it's almost like, you know, eating breakfast. Uh, it's, it's, it's early in the morning. The old habits die hard. You know, I, st- I wrote the first two books real early in the morning because I didn't have any extra time. Now it's about 7.30, 7, 7.30, um, same small office behind the house where I've been writing for the last 22 years. Same desk, same computer, same cup of coffee, same quilt, same air, you know, it's dark. It's, I love it. I love it. It's 7.30 in the morning, whatever the month. Uh, there's, there, there are no phones, faxes, or internet. I work offline. So it, I'm in a cocoon for the first three hours, and I just love that. And, and, and that's writing draft. That's draft. That's writing the draft, or that's outlining too. Is that whatever? It's part? both. It's both. I mean, I'll I'll, uh, I'll 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 write for a couple of hours, take a break, maybe go have breakfast, uh, coffee or whatever. Come back, have an idea for an outline that I'll jot down, uh, or maybe a short story I'll jot down, or maybe something I'll jot down, and get back into the novel. And a good day, I'll write um, two thousand words. A slow day is a thousand, but you do that five days a week. Uh, for six months, and that's a lot of pages. And that's how the books are written. It's very – now, if we want to take off and go somewhere for a week, we do that. without. I don't even think about it. I've also learned – my deadline is always July the 1st um, for the legal thrillers. And I've learned a long time ago uh, I can do a whole lot of work in the past last six weeks. If I get behind, I can, you know – You can we, you, we, you can we, bang it out because you've – well, you've amassed – you know where the momentum yeah. is there yeah, by now. yeah. And you keep to that deadline or closer. You said you were working on this book through August. But when you're when you're doing this, the first draft, a lot of people get killed in a first draft because of anything, the the idea that they have to be perfect. You already mentioned that you that you rewrite. Uh, when you're writing those pages, generating pages, going from outline to draft, are you uh, allowing yourself, do you know, well, this isn't going to be perfect yet. I'm going to still have to do a lot of work. W- do you just force yourself to produce pages? I guess what's the difference between a good and a bad day? Uh, well, I don't. I don't force it. Um, yeah, I'll have a slow day occasionally because usually it comes down to research. Uh, I really know enough. Yeah, I really hate to write something soft, knowing I've got to go back and I have to come back and do it after I do the research. It's really painful. Thank God for Google. I mean, I'm, seriously, thank God for Google because I'll take a break. I'll make a list of three things I got to check. Facts, locations, names, whatever, dates. Uh, I'll scribble those down, take a break, get some more coffee. And when I'm doing that or when I'm eating breakfast, I'll hammer out the research with Google. Um, and you use researchers too, don't you, sometimes? I'm so lazy. Uh, I've gotten so lazy over the years when it comes to the legal research, the, the, the stuff that pe- people think I'm brilliant about. I'll hire a law student at the University of Virginia where I live and these kids are incredibly bright and fun, and uh, you know, I'll say, go research this stuff, and um, they're, they're, they do great work. And I get the memo the next morning, and, and I get so tickled when I when I publish a book, and some reviewer is going on about how Grisham's knowledge of the law is staggering. I thought, come on, man, I, you know, it's either Google or some kid in law school, right? But but also you're obviously thinking about it. Yes, so you and I remember because I remember on Street Lawyer, even you had gone down there and met the people who did. Did that stuff, didn't you? Oh, I probably did more on the ground research for Street Lawyer because I spent so much time in D.C. on the streets, in the streets, uh, with the homeless shelters and soup kitchens and social workers and lawyers. And um, yeah, it not was, that you care about making a difference with the books or anything. <laughs> I, I really that book got under my skin, and yeah. uh, and it was there was a lot of time spent in Washington D.C. In the homeless community, oh, you can uh, feel it when you read yeah, them. That's one of my yeah. favorite books of yours. And uh, 
And you know what? You, you guys wrote that great uh, uh, screenplay for it. We filmed the pilot, yeah. and it's some of the best TV I've ever seen, the pilot. I'm, of course, I'm biased, of course. No, it was a heartbreaker. That's it one of the heartbreaker. Big, biggest heartbreakers of our career, Dave, and, and my career is, is uh, you know, as you know, that thing was going on the air, and the last minute got pulled, and we've never really understood why. And uh, we felt such a, as you did, such a sense of mission making it. Yeah. Uh, and um, great cast, one, great writing, great acting, great things. location. And, uh, and we, it, Dave and I always say that thing would have been on the air for eight years, nine years. It, it set up for it. It had all these stories. And I know you guys tried again, but people should read the listen. The book is there for people to read, and it's sadly the book is even more important. Yeah. Now, I yeah. Uh, I think um, when when you started writing, another thing I think trips people up is is this fear of being judged by others did you did you tell people you were writing the first book to your lawyer did you tell the people in your firm when the book came out i know there's a famous story but you have in copies that you would give away to people but when you were writing and then when you were writing the firm how did it fit into your life and how did you talk about it to other people and yourself i tell students and people all the time don't talk about your book uh you have nothing to talk about (laughs) until it's finished and published you right. know, Hemingway would say, don't talk the book out, right? Yeah, but you, I see people do it all the time. They, they would talk their book to death and never finish writing the thing. Uh, no, I didn't tell anybody except my wife. I, I, was, I wasn't sure I was going to finish when I started. There was, so there was nothing to talk about. Uh, I, I, I tend to start projects and never quite get finished. And so This is when you were young. I mean, yeah, you don't. Yeah, when I, when I was young, younger. And um, so I didn't talk about it until. I, you know, we, I think when I had an agent, when I finally got an agent, it was turned down by everybody. Finally, an agent said uh, he would represent me. I may have told my family at that point that there was a book in the works. Uh, I don't really remember. It was a long time ago. Um, but did the rejections ding, ding you? Like when you were rejected in the beginning, did it make you question the value of the book? Not really because I had read so much about – how to get published, you right. know, how to how to go about it. And I knew that rejections are just part of the routine. And there are great stories about uh, writers who've been rejected so many times for great books. And it really keeps you going. It really motivates me. So you noted, you noted that for yourself. You were aware of it and sort of... Yeah. Well, yeah. And at the same time, listen, I was a busy, busy small town lawyer. I wasn't making any money, but I was busy. I was a member of the state legislature in Jackson, which took up a third of my time. Plus, my wife's having babies. So life is really complicated. I mean, I didn't have any time. This was a little secret uh, part-time hobby of mine. If it didn't work out, that was okay. I had a law office. I, I was going to be a lawyer you know, or a judge or something. I had a career. So it wasn't like I was suicidal. When I, got, when I got rejection letters. Yes. And, I, and, I, and I thought with each, with, with each rejection letter, maybe I'm one step closer. You know, so that's, that's right. What I, I hadn't found the person yet, but maybe the next one will be the keep person. Keep submitting, keep submitting. So, you know, I, I was 30 and I was working full time and I had a young baby and another was coming soon when Dave and I wrote Rounders, our first movie. But what I remembered was when you say now, well, it wouldn't matter because I had all this other stuff. But, but for me, and I have to assume it was the same for you or in some way the same for you. No other part of my professional life made me feel as alive as that time in the morning when I was writing. That had become when I was the most, the person I wanted to be. I connected to this thing. I didn't know either. You know, like I said, it was the same age. Did it feel like that? When you were writing your book, did it feel like you would some, I know you don't think about these things, but did it feel like you'd found a purpose that was different? It gave me uh, a very big dream Okay. Yes. I, I, I'd only been a lawyer for four or five years when I started writing. And then once I started writing and the pages started piling up, I began reading more and more about publishing and how to get published and whatever. And it became this huge dream, the dream of writing full time and not having to be a lawyer because I was, the, the more I dreamed, the more disillusioned I got with being a lawyer. Sure. And it was easy. There's a lot of frustration with the practice of law at all levels, all different sizes of firms and all this. And I was kind of burned out, I think, uh, even after only five years because Again, it's it's too many lawyers in a small town. It's hard to make a buck. So I had this – the dream got bigger. Plus the legislature thing, which you saw – the, the difference between the, the hopes and the actualization, right? That, that, that I, became, I became very cynical very fast uh, about politics, and I wanted to get out of that. Uh, so that kind of dovetailed into the dissatisfaction with practicing law and the dream of writing full-time. And after 
after A Time to Kill came out, I, my goal, <laughs> my goal was simply to get a, get a, get a bigger publisher, publisher company, maybe expand the readership so that three or four books down the road, if I kept doing this, I could quit and write full time. So, I mean, the dreams were very modest. But you would have been would, happy to earn the same amount of money you're earning as a lawyer. Which, which wasn't much at all. <laughs> I'm saying if you could have just supported yourself yeah. writing, yeah. that would have been enough. It's interesting, you know, when you wrote The Firm, the second book, you were mostly imagining the kind of influence that money and power bring. Mm-hmm. But now you personally know, mm-hmm. right? Because you're a wealthy man who can fly private and does fly private. And yet... In many of your books, this idea of people who live this way is to be looked at skeptically. And I'm wondering how it's changed the way you've thought about these stories. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, probably. I, I, I can't. No, I still I still pull pull for the underdog. I still yes. like. No, I know. I still like the little guy. I still, especially when the little guy is getting screwed by, you know, you know a, a big guy, the government, a corporation, an issue, whatever. You know, now I'm saying though, um, that's why I, I can I, I can tell it hasn't changed your allegiance. That your allegiance is even more with the little guy. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, as you're going in a private airport and you're walking past the other people, as you're hearing the snippets of their conversation, you're not imagining it anymore. You can, or you're imagining sort of um, the more nefarious details. But I guess, what is it you see living in that strata? What do you think you got right about it, even before you knew? And like, what do you think you got you got wrong? I don't think in those terms. I don't think in those terms. I, you know what? I, th- I, I I'm, I'm still very grateful for what I what's happened to me. I don't take it for granted. I, ke- I keep my feet on the ground, and I just try to to help people and treat them fairly, and and write the best fiction I can write year after year. My dreams have all been fulfilled. Yes. Which is which is kind of, I guess, kind of sad. Yeah, there's nothing left to dream for, but I never dreamed I would be here. And um, and so I'm very content with where I am and very, very grateful. Well, so what's the reason that you write now? Has it changed from back then, which was you had this dream? You obviously loved writing. What is it that gets you? So it's it's routine and you do it, but what is it that gets you up now to still to do it every day some uh books and some issues really tick me off and i want to go after people i want to expose something i want to uh i want to uh shed some light on an issue that maybe we hadn't thought about for example uh the more i read about student debt in this country the more ticked off i get and what the government has done, what the lenders have done, what some of these schools have done to entice students to come to school there with f- false claims of big jobs. You know, so these kids, you know, they finish college and they don't have a mountain of debt, can't get a job. Anyway, it's it's, it's not fraudulent, but it's, it's not really right either. And that's an issue that the more I read, the more um, the more I want to explore it. And I can I can see a novel coming. You know, with, with that with that background, with that issue, and um, that's great. Yeah, because it's it's it's. It, I mean, there are a lot of stories, and I've been uh, digging for some time. Um, so, I mean, that stuff like that can still keep me awake at night. I, I, listen, I got two guys in Oklahoma who've been in prison for thirty three years, uh, who were as innocent as the two of us, and I write them letters and I send them a little cash and non DNA case, right. And we're trying to get them out, and we, they're still there. And I think about them all the time. And I met them when I was researching the innocent man uh, right. because they shouldn't be there. And uh, I don't right. Know. And it's still when you see injustice, you 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 want to write an entertaining book, but you want to get in there and and expose it in some way and make us think about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was going to ask you, but I guess this is it. What do you consider the responsibility of your position? But I guess that is it, right? To do this work the best you can and. I don't feel a responsibility just because of who I am and and how big my megaphone is. You know, I, sure I have an audience, but yeah, you really can't. You got to be careful with your audience because they don't all share my politics, and you can't you can't be intrusive with your politics in popular fiction when you're trying to entertain people. So I, you know, I really have to watch that, and I, I do watch it. I don't feel a responsibility to write a book next year that's gonna that might change something. My responsibility next year is to write a book that will entertain. And if it, even if, if your secret purpose, even if the thing that that fires you up to do it though, is something that bothers you, yeah, you'll then try to wrap it in a package that's digestible. Sure. Oh yeah. 
look forward to it. I mean, that's that's what I want to do every time out. Who uh, who's the ideal reader? Like, who are you picturing? Is it your wife still? Is it David? Like, who who do you picture picking up your book and 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 reading it? I have never been asked that question, and I thought I'd seen all the questions. I thought I'd been faced with all of them. Well, first of all, she's female because uh, two thirds of all books are bought by by women. Uh, she's going to buy it during the Christmas season because thirty five percent of all books are are sold during the Christmas season. I would guess she's probably going to be um, over 40 because they buy more books than under 40. And, um, pro- you know, that's kind of narrows it down. That's probably your my, my typical reader. And and are you thinking about that at all as you write? I try to think about the readers. If I did that, I'd probably go crazy. You know, I'm lucky there are a lot of them. And there are a lot of people who, you know, we publish tomorrow, October 25th. And um, there are a lot of people who have that date circled and will go to the store tomorrow or buy it online or whatever sure. because it's pub day. Um, that's still very gratifying. Uh, but if if I thought about all those people, it'd probably be too much pressure to write. I, I can when I'm, when I'm writing, I cannot think about the people who are going to read the book. I have to think about the story. Right. I think about getting the story right, getting the next, get the next chapter right, or writing this scene here because in about three chapters, this scene is going to be a whole lot more important. That's I'm focused, I'm zoned in on that so much as I, as I write. I'm nailing the story. Yeah, it's all for the story's sake. Once you're in it, once you're in the room, yeah. the brand goes away, the business stuff goes away, and it's, all, it's just yeah. you, the John, John, and the page. Really, it's all about That's, the story. It's all about the writing, the pacing, the story, the story, the story. Do you think about your legacy at all? You know, in the way Stephen King will talk about it sometimes, being considered a popular fiction writer, not a not a, a literary figure, or how that's going to... Does he think he's literary? Does Stephen think he's literary? Well, I, I, I don't know. I've met him a couple times. I mean, you, you're good friends. I think you know the answer. <laughs> Steve has no legacy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pull quote. Yeah. No, but, but obviously, he's, you know, written to the New Yorker and for the New Yorker. He's, he's engaged in this question, right? Oh, yeah. He, he, Steve likes to, he likes to review books, and, and you know, he, he, he's a little more serious than I am. I have already twice I can think of, I've told people, do not write my biography. These were, uh, these were not, well, not serious you know, biographers, but they were, they had published a series of, of small biographies and they wanted my help to publish. And I said, there's no way I'm going to agree to that. It's in my will. I'm telling my kids, my fat, do not, do not, no, do not, don't cooperate. Don't cooperate. I don't want anything written about me after I'm dead. I don't care about, you're dead. I mean, you think about it. What's a legacy worth? Your legacy is what you do when you're here, the way you help people, and the way you raise your kids, the way you treat your friends, and the way you treat everybody else. Um, my books are not going to be read 50 years from now. Uh, what do I care? I'm not going to be here. All right. I, this will be my uh, – thank you for this, for, for being so open and uh, available, even as, as you've denied and then, and then <laughs> confirmed that you write these books because you get annoyed about what you see in the world. But um, – and I know you don't want to talk about politics. This isn't a politics question exactly, but to me, Donald Trump is like uh, an even worse version of a lot of your characters or an exaggerated version of many of your villainous characters. And I'm, what I'm wondering is when you look at his appeal, do you understand what people see? Because in your books, very often people are drawn to these kind of charismatic leaders in their little world, even the, in, even the, 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 the chief of the Indian tribe. And do you understand what it is I was reading this book, Hillbilly Elegy, which by J.D. Robb, which is a wonderful book that sort of gives you some insight. You're nodding along as you've read the book. No, I'm not familiar with it. It's on my, it's on my night table. You'll right. enjoy it. Um, it's really fascinating. But also one can look to your books to try to understand this, I think. And do you understand what it is that people see, what they're drawn to when they look at a figure like this? No, I don't see the appeal. I, I see um, – because, because the, to me, the guy is so fraudulent. I would see the appeal if if you had a right wing uh, demagogue, uh, xenophobic, uh, plenty of those out there. You know, maybe even racist guy who's going to appeal to folks who've lost their jobs in the Rust Belt, people who are struggling, people who are fed up with Washington. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of appeal there. There, there, there are a lot of folks. You know, probably thirty five, forty percent who kind of fall in that category. 
good people who are out of work, good people who yes. are afraid of of immigrants, people who you know they're, they're, that's a lot of folks. I can see them following a leader if the leader has some credibility. Right. You know, if it, was, it was the right kind of leader who came along and played to those, and you're seeing this a lot in Europe. You know the anti-immigration uh, parties. Yeah, I, I can I can understand some of that. Okay, you know we we enjoy going to France on vacation uh, once or twice a year. And the French people are terrified because there there's so many foreigners in the country who who will not assimilate, who who have no who have no desire to assimilate. Now you're seeing such violence, they're they're truly afraid of losing their culture and their way of life. Well, I mean, I can I can understand that at some level. I, I don't. You understand. can understand how a demagogue could appeal. Sure. How a demagogue could sure. appeal to that. But you look here, and to you, it's so patently fraudulent that you can't understand it. I, I cannot understand why anybody would be impressed with that guy and why why they would believe anything he said. Because he, you know, he, he he cannot tell the truth about anything, and never has. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see the appeal for that guy. I, I would see the appeal for a different leader with more credentials, who who, who truly believed uh, in what he was saying and knew what he was saying, who who'd been fighting these fights for a long time, who'd been you know been in the trenches for a long time, was real conservative, right wing leader, blah blah blah. And I, I I can see the appeal, but not with this clown. Well, that's great. Not with this clown is a great way to end. Uh, Hillbilly Elegy, by the way, is J.D. Vance, not J.D. Robb. That's a different right. person. Right. Um, and uh, John Grisham's new book, The Whistler, is in stores now. But this will be up this right. week. It'll be uh, in stores now on Amazon. I give it a full uh, a full recommend. And the book we mentioned earlier, if you're, if you're someone who hasn't read Grisham or you're not into thrillers, the book Playing for Pizza – which is set in Italy and is about a guy who wants to play quarterback is uh, another one, even though I know that's not what you're selling right now. I just think uh, a lot of people who listen to my show would really love that book because of the, and, and would see a side of you that I bet you they don't, they don't know about. So I'm going to give that, that's the second recommend. Read it for the food, the food. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, it's clear. That's I'm another hungry thinking about it. Now, do you even outline those books? Yes, maybe not to the extent that uh, with a legal thriller. With a legal thriller, the plots are, can get kind of intricate, so you better not mess up. But with you know, Calico Joe and and Bleachers and Playing for Pizza and Skipping Christmas and some of the uh, small, we call them small books, uh, they're always outlined but not nearly as extensively. John Grisham, thank you so much for being here. I uh, hope uh, breaking you into the world of podcasting uh, was uh, <laughs> You know, not so painful. No, I enjoyed it. My right. pleasure. Great. My pleasure. Thanks. Um, you can find me on social media at Brian Kaltman. Good luck finding John on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just got to go stalk him down in Virginia. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Go buy uh, John's book. <laughs>